You know, there was a famous uh, novel written many years ago by a gentleman named Lewis Carroll. I remember reading it as a, as a child. Uh, Lewis Carroll wrote two books. He wrote Alice in Wonderland, and he wrote Through the Looking Glass. But his most famous piece was Alice in Wonderland. And in Alice in Wonderland, there's a very uh, famous scene where Alice, after falling through the mirror, is traveling in Wonderland, and she's coming down this road, and there's a fork in the road. And Alice, in, in the middle of the fork, there is a tree, and in the tree is the Cheshire Cat, right? Anybody read Alice in Wonderland beside me? Seriously? All right, well, I'm, bear with me here. So Alice falls through this mirror. She's in this amazing, like, wonderland. And she's walking down a path, and then there's a fork in the road. In the middle of the path is a tree. And in the tree is the Cheshire Cat. He's got this big, wide grin. And Alice, coming to this fork in the road, asks the Cheshire Cat, what road do I take? Of which the Cheshire Cat responds, where do you want to go? Alice, looking at him, responds, I don't know. Of which the Cheshire Cat sarcastically says, well, then it doesn't matter what road you take. Right? And I think this is really significant because I think that's like many people who go to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. You know, they come down this road, but they don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're doing, nor do they even know why they're there. Some have been forced through tradition to just say, okay, this is what you do on a Sunday. And I often think about it, and I say, you know, does the church, does the church have a very definite purpose within the overall plan of God. What's the role of the church? What role does the church play in redemptive history? And even more importantly, what is the believer's responsibility in the church? Now, if you go on our website, right, and if you go under the, uh, under the tab that says, what do we believe? You'll see we have several things out there. We have a Calvary confession that lists all the details. It's a summation of what we believe as a church. And that's followed by the seven pillars of the church, right? The seven pillars of the church. Now, the seven pillars of the church, I wrote as I was praying and fasting for God for a new direction in my life. This was before Calvary was birthed. I was saying, Father, what should the church look like? What should the church look like? And I believe that through the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the Lord led me to these seven pillars. It's not divine. It's not on par with Scripture. I'm just telling you what the Lord impressed on my heart. And he impressed these seven truths that we capture on our website. And they are as follows. The church is built upon Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the first one. The second one is the church is built upon the Word of God. The third one is the church is gospel proclaiming. The fourth one is the church is missional. The fifth one is the church is built upon godly worship. The sixth one is the church is a community of believers. And the seventh one is the church is a prayer-based community. So as we look at things, we look and say, well, these seven pillars, you know, you think of strong columns that hold up a beautiful building. These seven pillars are the seven foundations, if you would, of the church. Now, it's never intended to be exhaustive, right? It's not like these are the only things, but these were seven important truths that I believe that were imparted and seven important truths that form the basis of Calvary, right? And so I want to focus this next series on the church, 
on the church. What is the plan of the church? What is the purpose of the church in redemptive history? And more specifically, what should be our role here within our local church? I don't want anybody to come to church that doesn't know why they come to church or cannot give a good answer as to why they come to church. Right? You got to know. What's your role? What do you have to do? What's the mission of the church? What's our mission? Our our mission is not, and I want to be crystal clear with this, is to put people in seats. If we wanted to put people in seats, we could make a few minor changes open the doors up, and we'll get this place full. We can get it rocking. We can get it rolling. We could appeal to fleshly issues. And we could fill this place. That's not it. And so I want to look at the first pillar. That's what we're going to look at today, the first pillar. The church is built upon Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what we're going to look And each of the subsequent weeks, we're going to look at one of the seven pillars, right? And so we're going to look at that, and we must have a firm foundation. And the first thing I want to tell you is we must have a firm foundation that the church does not exist to please us, nor does the church exist to entertain us. The church is about Christ not about people. It's about Christ, right? So we need to define what is the mission of the church. We need to define first what is the mission of the church. Is the mission of the church that we come together for a a once-a-week meeting? Is that really the mission of the church? A group of people that share a common confession. We come to church on Sunday. We exchange social pleasantries for about 15 minutes. Maybe occasionally get together on the side. Is that all there is to the church? I submit to you, quite obviously, no. That's not it. That's not it. That's called a social club. You can find them anywhere. Okay? Is it simply that we come and we follow a liturgy, we follow a tradition, we follow a formula, and in doing that, there is some inherent benefit to us. It makes us good people, it helps us to understand, to be kind to one another. No, that's not it either, right? That is not the purpose of the church. So what is the purpose of the church, right? Is the, is the mission of the church, here's a good one, is the mission of the church purely social? In other words, you know, we feed the poor and we clothe the homeless and we, we do good deeds in society. Is that the mission of the church? Is the mission of the church to bring about political justice? Are we to align ourselves with a particular political party? Are we to strive to restore dignity and human rights into the society? Is that the mission of the church? Contrary to what many well-meaning Christians may say about those things, okay, the church of Jesus Christ is defined by its mission. And the mission of the church is to declare the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the primary mission of the church. We are to declare the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And anything that omits or puts secondary, that primary truth has it wrong. Now look, as a church, we certainly want to be social, right? We want to help those that have needs. We want to demonstrate the love of Christ. So I'm not advocating, hey, we don't do that. Right? And, and certainly, as, as moral, conscious, believing Christians, right, we want to support those things that are most edifying to God in the cultural, political scene, and we want to condemn those things 
that are antithetical, that are directly opposite to God. We want to we wanna condemn those things. So we don't want to vote for abortion rights, and we don't want to vote for all these other different things because God commands us to live righteously. And we cannot acquiesce, and we cannot support, in the name of love, things that contradict the very basic foundational tenets of morality as defined to us in the Scripture. No. The mission of the church is to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And this mission was given to us directly by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Here is the mission of the church. Don't lose this. This has ramifications for every person who calls themselves a believer in Christ. You might know this as the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. This is the Great Commission. This is the Great Mission. To put it in popular vernacular, this is the mission statement of the church. We are to go and we are to make disciples, not decisions. We are to make disciples for Christ. You know what we do here? We do here by preaching the Word of God, by teaching the Word of God, by having coffee on Thursday, by meeting with one another one-on-one, we're making disciples for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And when what we do here is we articulate what Christ has commanded. He said, go make disciples, teach them all that I commanded. When we open up this word of God, what are we doing? We're teaching everybody all that Christ has commanded, right? So that they would go forth and be disciples of Jesus. And I want to add something else to this too. This mission is not optional. Everybody follow me with that? This mission is not optional. Every person who calls themselves a believer of Jesus Christ is entrusted with that mission. Everyone. You may say, Pastor, I don't know as much Bible as you or or, Pastor, I get nervous talking to other people. Or, Pastor, I can't, sit on a, I can't stand on a street corner and just approach people that have great. But you have friends. You have relatives. You have neighbors whom you may go out there and speak about the weather and you may speak about all the ills of, of, of society today or you may speak about a whole host of different things. People of whom you have earned the right to speak. You've earned the right to speak. And all of us have that capability to be able to declare the gospel. Now, some people may declare the gospel to thousands, ten thousands, even millions. I haven't been blessed with that. Right? I don't know what that final count is. I don't even know if there is a count. Okay? But I do know that when opportunities arise, we have the opportunity to proclaim the Word of God. So that mission is not optional. Secondly, number one, no one has the right to alter that mission. No one has the right to change that mission. No one has the right to say, well, social needs are greater than the gospel. No one has the right to say political needs are, are greater than the gospel. No one has the right to say, well, loving everybody is more important than the gospel. How dare anyone try to alter the very words of Jesus Christ? Amen. This is a command. How dare anyone say, well, you know, yeah, we want to get with Jesus, but, you know, you got to first know. Go ye into the world and make disciples. What did the early church do? 
they went into the world. They made disciples. They preached in Jerusalem. What happened to the gospel? Jerusalem spread to Judea, to Samaria, to the outermost parts. Go out and spread the gospel. This is the mission. This is, and by the way, the Lord uses that first word, go, which is an imperative, which is go, do, I command you to do. So we need to be able to take that. And the vehicle, listen, the vehicle that God has chosen to do this, you ready? Is the church. This is the vehicle. We are the vehicle that God has chosen to advance the gospel and the kingdom of God. Which is why back there we have tracks and resources for people to be able to do. When I used to take, when I used to travel in my work, I used to take a bunch of tracks and I'd get on an airplane and, and put right in the, in the little thing there where they have the emergency exit procedures. And I would put it in, in the emergency exit procedure, procedure thing and I would put it in the seat that maybe that somebody come behind me, open up that emergency procedure, and lo and behold, the track would fall out. And who knows, maybe they would be responsive. Maybe that track, through the providence and sovereignty of God, was earmarked specifically for that individual. We are the vehicle. We are the vehicle. We are the vehicle. The church is the vehicle to advance the kingdom of God which now should give you, if you did not have that already, it should now give you a different perspective and a different value attached to the church. If you call yourself a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are part of the Lord's organization. You are part of the Lord's army. And God said, let me equip you. I will equip you and I will arm you. And you will go out and you will spread the gospel. The church is not about saying, bring all the unbelievers in. Fill them in and then, you know, my pastor or whoever gets up there is going to whip out some magic words and then they're going to repent and they're going to see how cool we are. You know, we dress like them. We sing like them. We act like them. We're all tatted up like them. They're going to like us. They're going to like us because we look just like the world. Wrong formula, folks. Wrong formula. Here's a question for you to contemplate. Were people attracted to Jesus Christ because he looked, sounded, walked, talked just like the Pharisees? No. What did the people say? Mark chapter 1 records it. Who is this? Who is this, they said of Jesus, who speaks with authority? Not like the scribes and Pharisees. People are not going to come to Christ because of how similar we are to them in their sin. People are going to be drawn to Jesus Christ because of how different we are from them in their sin. So God has chosen the church, the church to be the heralder of the gospel in a dark, sinful world. By the way, here's another bulletin. Jesus said the world's going to hate you. Yes, it will. Don't expect to be welcomed by the world. Don't expect that the world's going to go, oh, this is the greatest thing. Oh, we love the church. If you stand for Christ, if you live for Christ, you're going to be hated by the world. So church, we are the vehicle that God has, and it is a great privilege and a great honor to be called among the church. That's the first thing I want to lay before you. So as we look at this first pillar, that the church is built upon Jesus Christ as Lord, we have defined the mission of the church. But now let's look at that statement. The church is built upon Jesus Christ as Lord. 
And to do that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to look at verses 15 through 18. Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. And I'll read it through and we'll go through. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. Now, let me give you a little bit of background to the text so we understand the context here. At the beginning of chapter 16, Jesus is being pestered by the Pharisees and their partners, the Sadducees. I think I've explained this to you. Think of it this way. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives. They believed in the whole canon of the Old Testament. Okay? They believed in miracles. They believed in angels. They believed in the afterlife. The Sadducees were the equivalent of religious liberals. They only believed in the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, right? So that's Genesis through Deuteronomy. They did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in hell, right? So they were the religious liberals. But notice they have a common enemy, and it's Christ. And so they begin to partner together, and they are pestering Jesus in the beginning. And what were they doing? They were asking Jesus, hey, if you're this great prophet, if you're this, show us a sign. Do a trick for me. Do a trick so that I could believe, right? And we see this in verse 3. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, a wicked and a perverse generation seeketh after a sign right? And he tells his disciples in verses 5 through 12, he says, listen, beware, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaven being, you know, the corruption that they spread. And we see in verse 13, they enter Caesarea Philippi, right? Now they're in Gentile country. They're in Gentile country. There's no big crowds following them, right? They're among the Gentiles. And Jesus takes this time for a moment of kind of reflection, quiet reflection with his disciples. And if you look, if you look at verse 13, Jesus asks his disciples a question. He says, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? Right? Matter of fact, he uses the term, who do people say who the Son of Man is? Death, by the way, is Jesus' favorite term for himself, Son of Man. And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, but still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets, right? So first question, what's the buzz? What are people saying? What are they saying? Who am I? What are you saying about Christ, right? So the disciples say, well, some say John the Baptist. Makes good sense, right? John was a great preacher. He preached the kingdom of heaven, was at hand. He was a fiery preacher. He had already been killed by this time. They're thinking maybe it's John the Baptist has come back to life. And some say to him, well, maybe Elijah. And if they studied the word of God, they knew that Elijah would return prior to the return of the Son of God. He said, still others say Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. Jeremiah preached the judgment of Judah and the Babylonian captivity. He wailed in lamentations. Or one of the prophets. So So it's looking like 
people are mostly believing that you're a prophet. You're, you're a worker of God in some fashion or form. Yes, but now Jesus turns the question on them. And he asks them in verse 15, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? By the way, it's the question every human being has to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? He turns the question in now. He personalizes the issue. And in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is where we pick up. Thou art the Christ. The Son of the living God is the answer from Peter, from foot-in-mouth Peter. Foot-in-mouth Peter, who always said something brilliant, and then the next minute said something dumb, and I could see Jesus going, Oh, man, what am I going to do with this guy? But Peter leaps forward. He says, thou art the Christ. Now, there's two important words you need to remember in there. Thou art the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the Hebrew word Mashiach, right? Thou art the Christ. Mashiach means the anointed one of God. So this is an emphatic declaration. Who do you say that out? Thou art the Christ. Thou art the anointed one of God. No doubt about it. But to emphasize that, Peter goes on and he says, the son of the living God. Now, living God, those two words, that combination of two words was an Old Testament term for Jehovah. It's an Old Testament term for Jehovah, right? So notice Peter's statement. You are the anointed one of God. You are the very son of the living God. To be the son of God, you have to be God. You are Jehovah. You are the Son of God. And Jesus responds and he says this. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now I want you to catch this response from the Lord because this is very important. He says, blessed, favored are you. You're favored. God, as we're going to see, gave Peter a revelation. You're favored. Blessed are you. As a matter of fact, it's the only time we see Jesus use Simon's full name. Simon bar Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. That's what his name means. Right? He says, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. And he goes on and he says this. He said, flesh and blood, you didn't get this from your own intellect. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You did not figure this thing out. You said this because my Father who is in heaven revealed this truth. Now, this is, listen, I want to make this clear. This proclamation is critical because it is a proclamation of the person of Christ. Not merely the position of Christ, but it is a full proclamation of the person of Christ. What do I mean? That Christ is God's anointed one, that Christ is the Son of of the very living God. He is the Son of Jehovah. He has come to fulfill the ministry that the Lord had given him to fulfill. This is a huge, huge statement. It's so huge that the Father did it to proclaim it in front of the disciples. Do you know who you're with? Do you know who you're with? Do you know who this man is that you've been following? I'm going to tell you who this man is. He is the very Son of God. And now we get to the whole issue 
of the church. Look at verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overpower it or shall not prevail against this. Now listen. You got to understand this. This is a play on words that the Lord is doing here. Peter's name in the Greek is Petros. His name literally means little stones, kind of like pebbles or river stones. You skip across a lake or you skip, a, uh, you skip across a river. That's what his name is. So he says, you are Peter. You are little stone. You are the little stone, Peter. And he goes on to say to him, and upon this rock, and he uses a different word. He uses the word Petra in the Greek. Petra in the Greek means cliff or boulder. That's what it means. So, Peter, you're a little stone, you're a pebble, but upon this rock, upon this cliff, upon this boulder, he said, I will build my church. He's going to build his church. And the question for us from the text is, what boulder is he referring to? And as we look at the text objectively, we have to come to a place and say, well, is he talking about Peter? Is, is the Lord saying, as some church traditions, the church of Rome would say that the Lord built the church upon Peter as the first pope? But it's clear. He's not building upon Petros, the pebble. He goes on to say, I'm... I'm building it upon this cliff. I'm building it upon this boulder. So it can't be that, oh, Peter, I'm going to build my church upon you. It can't be. Just absolutely cannot be. And as we look at the text a little bit further, right, we come back to the question, well, what's the boulder? If the boulder is not Peter, what is the cliff? What is the boulder? And the only logical conclusion we could arrive at is what precedes what he said before Peter. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the boulder. That is the cliff. That is what the church is built upon. And if you don't believe me, read the rest of the text. He says that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build Build whose church? He uses a, 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 a pronoun, a possessive pronoun. Upon this cliff, upon this boulder, I am going to build, not Peter's church, I am going to build my church. My church. It is Christ's church. Christ's church. It's not the Baptist church. It's not the Methodist church. It's not the Pentecostal church. It's not the Episcopal church. It's not the big church. It's not the small church. No such thing as a big church or a small church. There's only the church. That's it. The church of Christ. So the Lord Jesus is establishing the base foundation of the first pillar. And the first pillar is the church is built upon Jesus Christ. But that's not what our first pillar says in its entirety. Our first pillar says that the church is built upon Jesus Christ as Lord. As Lord. Matter of fact, that term church there is used very infrequently in the gospel. That church basically means an assembly of a religious assembly. It actually literally means, if you transliterate it, mm -hmm. assembly. Okay. That's what it means. It means assembly. The Greek word is ekklesia. 
is the Greek word. In Spanish, we say iglesia, right? It's an iglesia. It's the same in Italian. They come together. The boulder upon which we're built is Jesus Christ. But we take it further. It's based on the person of Christ, right? And his work of salvation. And so today what we call the church, a following of believers in Christ, is built upon the person of Christ. But it's built upon, as I previously mentioned, not merely the person of Christ, but the position and the person of Christ. And that is Christ as Lord. What does Scripture say? Acts 4.11. Verses 11 and 12. Acts 4, verses 11 and 12. Speaking of Christ. And this is Peter preaching. This is Petros, Petros speaking. Little Pebble is speaking right now. And he is the stone which was rejected by you. The builder which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which ye must be saved. Notice Christ is the cornerstone. He is the foundation stone. He is the stone that's built that determines the entire angle of the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 3.11. The Apostle Paul says this at 1 Corinthians 3.11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.22. Ephesians 1.22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church. Amen. Ephesians 2.20, speaking of Christ, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And of course, this glorious verse in Colossians 1.14, he is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. And if I could make one comment there, it uses the term firstborn. That term firstborn doesn't mean that he was the first created, nor does it mean he was the first resurrected, but it means he is given that position of preeminence as the firstborn. That's what it means. It has nothing to do with chronology at all whatsoever. So the first pillar that we have is that the church is built upon Jesus Christ as Lord. And on our website, we state this is Christ's church of which he'll forever be the head. And we exist to bring glory to his name and make the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ known. Now, is that how you think of yourself in the church? Is that how you think of yourself, that we are members of Christ's church, that he is the preeminent ruler, that he is the foundation, that we're built upon them, and that those of us that come, we submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that the Lord would have preeminence in everything. Amen. If we really believe that church would not be optional, if we really believe that we would recognize the divine blessing and the divine privilege that Christ has given for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ to labor and strive within the church. Now, I want to add something else, too, that's also equally important. And that is the issue of the church and the kingdom of God. And you know what? We're going through the kingdom study on Tuesday night, and we're talking a lot about the kingdom of God. But I want to share something about what the church is. The church is, in the world today, the invisible kingdom of God. That's why when we do our Bible study on Tuesday night, I talk about kingdom living, kingdom life. What is the invisible? Right now, we, there are two kingdoms on this earth. There's the kingdom of darkness. 
that is headed by the ruler and the reigner, which is Satan himself. May his name be damned forever. And then there is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God are those believers in Jesus Christ. Those who have been truly born again. When you are born again, you become a member of the kingdom of God. John the Baptist came preaching, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? Jesus came preaching, hey, the kingdom of God is right before you. When Christ came, he ushered in the kingdom, but he ushered in the invisible kingdom for this time. So if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are members of this invisible kingdom. But Jesus... But there Jesus tells us that there's coming a day when the kingdom of God is going to be revealed in its entirety. In its entirety. And what do we mean when the kingdom of God is revealed? What we mean is that everything in creation will fall under complete rule and domination of God's kingdom. Jesus prayed in our Lord's prayer, right? Thy kingdom come. Well, Jesus, you came. What are you talking about, thy kingdom come? He's talking about the physical manifestation, the complete rule and reign of God's kingdom on earth. And I'm going to share something with you. That's not the millennium. Because during the millennium, people are still going to be born, and they're going to still be born in sin. And we know that after a thousand years, that Satan's going to be released yet again to deceive the nation. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the culmination of it all. When he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And that new heaven and new earth knows no corruption, knows no sin, doesn't have a devil. There are no demons. It is completely all things under the rule and reign of God. And so think about how privileged as we are as members of the church... That we become part, we are part of the invisible kingdom of God. And I want to share something else now, also equally important. Jesus never came, never came to cure social injustice. Jesus never came to align himself with political motivations or political parties or political wills. Jesus didn't come to end racism. Jesus didn't come to do all these other different things. All those things are the result of sin. So what did Jesus come? He came to give his life a ransom for sin so that all who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus came proclaiming salvation to all who would repent and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And so should the church today. We do not have the authority to change this mission. And consequently, we must preach first the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the very reason that we exist. I'll take it a step further. We look at the 6 o'clock news and we see, oh, what a horrible world. Look at all these terrible things that are happening. You know what the only hope for the world is? It's not the next president of the United States. There ain't a man out there that's going to solve these problems. It's not Bill Gates. It's not the World Economic Forum. It's not the United Nations. It's not in climate control and all the other different things that they're advocating. The only hope for the world is the gospel. That is it. Because it is the only thing that can change people's hearts. It is the only thing that can take them from being a slave of unrighteousness to becoming a slave of righteousness, which is why the gospel must be preeminent in the church. Just another thing. We talked about the church built upon Jesus Christ as Lord. Peter makes this incredible claim in his message at Pentecost in Acts 2.36. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, speaking of Jesus, both Lord and Christ. 
Lord and Christ. This idea that I could accept Jesus as my Savior and then many years later or months later make a decision to accept Him as Lord has no basis in Scripture whatsoever. Jesus Christ is either Lord of all or Jesus Christ is not Lord at all. That's the simple truth. That word Lord, the Greek word is kurios, right? And it means one who has absolute ownership. Master. That's what it means. Master, right? When Jesus was born, in Luke 2.11, what did the angels proclaim? They proclaim for today, born to you this day in the city of David, is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Wasn't optional. You say it wasn't Christ, and then maybe a few years later you figure out that He is Lord. He says He is Christ the Lord. In our, when, when Jesus appeared to Thomas, after the disciples told Thomas, Hey, we've seen the Lord. Thomas says, listen, you could tell me anything you want unless I see him stand in front of me today and I could take my fingers and stick them in his wounds. I'm not going to believe anything. And the Lord shows up. said, what's up, Thomas? Come on. You want proof? Come on. See my hands. Take your hand. Stick it in my side. Thomas makes an amazing statement. Yes, sir. The Bible says that Thomas in John 20, 28, he falls on his knees and he declares, my Lord, my God. Amen. By the way, right there, if Jesus was not God, right. he would have rebuked Thomas right then and there. He said, no, 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 I'm not God. I'm a God. Or I'm the Son of God. Yes, sir. But Thomas declares, my Lord yes, sir. and my God. Yes. Thomas was very precise with his words, and he does something else. He bows down. He bows down, and he worships him. Yes, we know in Revelation that when, when John bowed at the angel, what did the angel say? No, 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 no. Get back up, back up. I'm a fellow servant of Christ just like you. But we don't see Jesus rebuke him. We declare that the church is built upon Jesus Christ as Lord. And we say the same thing that the church, that no one has the authority to change that anywhere. That every Christian bows in humility to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In our scripture reading this morning, we, we read Philippians 2. And tells us this. It tells us that the day is coming when every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. What are they going to fess? confess? That Jesus Christ is what? Savior? Lord. Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee bows to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Every tongue confesses the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that He is Lord. And by the way, I don't have time to process this now, but if you really go back to the Old Testament, what they're really saying is Jesus Christ is Adonai. That's really where it goes. He's Adonai. He's sovereign Lord. He's ruler. He's reigner. He's glorious. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And either He is the Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. So then what's the purpose of the church? Let's, let's cut to the quick. Let's get to the application and the summary. What's the purpose of the church? Jeffrey Johnson in his book called The Church writes this. What is the purpose of the church? To be what God made it to be. A united holy people who uphold, follow, and propagate the truth of God's Word in an uncompromising fashion. And I think that's a great definition. The church is much more than a meeting place on Sunday morning. Please, 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 please get that. It is much more than a meeting place on Sunday morning and has much more significance and purpose than 
any of the alternatives for Sunday morning. It is not just ritual and liturgy and tradition and process. It is the church, listen, that Christ died for. Everybody said, Christ died for you. Christ died. I'll tell you who Christ died for. Christ died for the church. He loved the church. He gave his life for the church. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians, tells the husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. The church is worth so much more. to perhaps then what we give it. So much more. The church has been entrusted with the, the gospel. And when you have the gospel, you have the power of God unto salvation. And to be a faithful Christian, to demonstrate allegiance and obedience to Christ, that's what the church is for. Don't, please, please, Understand that we have been given a high privilege, a high privilege to be called a part of Christ's church. So it's my hope that today you know why we're here. What is our mission? And as I say every week, you know, if you have you repented of your sins, have you turned by faith to Jesus Christ, have you come to him, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, if you have, you're a member of the church. Praise God. If you have it, you need to repent and turn to Christ. And one of our fundamental beliefs as outlined in our seven pillars, again, is that the church is built upon Jesus Christ as Lord. So if you call Calvary your home church, we honestly encourage you to to take this information. Renew your commitment to the church. We have needs. If we're united in scope, if we're united in purpose, man, there's nothing that God can't do with us. You have to get to that place where you believe that. We can make monumental impact on our society through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's bow in a word of prayer.